up close with Carlos Sang, celebrating art, entertainment and the human spirit. Uh, welcome to another episode of Up Close with Carlos Sang. My next guest is an award-winning writer with a brand new play opening at the Dilston Gallery in Southwark Park, starring Finn Whitehead and Boudicca Ricketts. She is also adapting her hit play Foxfinders for the screen later this year. Uh, I am so excited to be introducing Dawn King to the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so how did the idea for Addictive Beat first come about? Um, it's an idea that I've had for a while. Um, so actually with this one, I'm kind of not really able to say this is where it came from because I've had it for ages. But initially I was trying to make it into a circus show. So there was a kind of circus version of it that was at the Roundhouse um, Circus Fest in, I think, 2017, maybe? That was um, that was just like a 20 minute kind of version of of this idea, which was something that it was another like another company had asked me to kind of give them an idea for something and I said maybe this and then what became clear was that it didn't it didn't work as a circus piece because it had too much story and so I after that I thought you know I still really like this idea and I took it to Rob at Boundless and I said I've got this idea and it's about two um, musicians who together they create uh, an addictive beat and it sort of has a, a kind of almost like a science fiction kind of element because obviously that's that's a kind of science science fiction kind of idea but it's also very much about their friendship and their their it's like a very close platonic friendship that has a lot of complex stuff in it you know like they've been friends for a really long time and they kind of inspire each other they're also a bit jealous of each other and yeah it's a show about the power of music and about um friendship and raving and trying to figure out how to be true to yourself, even when that might mean that you have to kind of acknowledge that you aren't feeling great. It has like movement and music and dancing and singing in it. It's not like, a, it's not like really like a gig theatre because it's not, it's not that many songs. It's but the characters in, the characters in the show in character kind of perform one or two so, like tracks all the way through. Um, and we've been writing music for the show and that's been really amazing. So yeah, it's been a whole massive journey for me. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds really exciting. I mean, like each of your plays are all like so different from each other. You know, do you constantly look for different subjects each time you approach a brand new play? Yeah, I mean, it, the ideas are all different, I suppose. And then I'm serving the idea as best I can. And I think that I like stories that have something kind of, I mean, the things that I tend to write seem to be things which have some kind of twist or something it's you know there's usually something about it that makes it kind of I mean I would almost say kind of like high concept um possibly I would I would maybe use that as a phrase in terms of the theatre stuff yeah I mean I, I like all kinds of theatre you know I, I it's just that that's the kind of thing that I t seem to end up writing yeah I mean with Addictive Beach you know as well you know there's only two characters in the piece um you know what can you tell us about you know Alex and Robbie so Alex is a producer and DJ and Robbie is a singer-songwriter and they met at school um, and they form a bond of friendship because they love music and they don't have many other friends and then they kind of they sort of grow up together and then they've kind of separated where Robbie's gone off to London and Alex has stayed in their hometown and then the play starts with 
Robbie's come back home um, and she's been trying to kind of make her way in London and it hasn't been going that well. And they kind of come back together. And and meanwhile, Alex is had, had, having a difficult time as well. And yeah, they come back together and kind of start making something. Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned as earlier as well, you know, music plays a really central piece in this play. You know, how did you go about deciding what sort of music you wanted to incorporate into this production? Yeah, well, so Rob, um, the director and the artistic director of Boundless Theatre Company, um, he went looking for collaborators and we found um, Anecdote, who is a musician who's had like millions of streams on Spotify with various different um, musical sort of personas. And uh, he's composed two original tracks that are in the show and then also some other music that's kind of in the kind of character world. We have also got Don Quixote, who's the, the composer. He's composing like the score and that's kind of worked into the whole of the of the piece. And it's 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 been really amazing to work with the two of them. Like Anecdote, who who is not, he's not really like a, he's not a theatre person. He's like a proper music muso person. Um, and then Dom has like done music, theatre, like, you know, he's he's done this kind of, um, and they're just incredible. So we've we've been working and writing lyrics for a song and we've been in the studio recording. So that's been an amazing kind of experience for me, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Rob has had such an incredible career, you know, directing, you know, various shows, you know, including, I think it was Natives with Finn Whitehead as well. Yeah. Um, you know, what, you know, did you always have an idea that you wanted Rob to be directing this piece in particular? So I've known Rob for a while because I knew him. He was at the Bush when I had Cyphers. My One of my previous plays was on at the Bush and, and Rob was working there at the time. So that, that's how I knew Rob. And I kind of, when I when I had this idea, I knew that I was going to need a lot of support from the producing team um, and from the director because these two characters are young musicians and I'm not a musician. So I obviously was going to need help accessing the kind of, people and the and the world so that it was going to feel authentic and I think we've really managed to do that through anecdote and um, also with kind of input from from Dom and also we did some some like other stuff some research and talked to loads of people so I'm hoping that it's going to be a show which you know it like I'm hoping that people who are who are musicians can come and see it and it will feel like authentic and true to their lives yeah yeah, absolutely. I mean, what have the conversations as well been with, um, been like with Boundless Theatre more generally as well? You know, were there particular elements in your text that you wanted done in a certain way at all? Um, I mean, this one is quite an unusual one in that it it feels to me like the the words, like the the my writing, the words, the story, are one part of it, and then there's the sound and there's the movement. And so it's really about the the combination of those three languages to make the whole piece. I mean, so the script for the show is only like 50 something pages, but, you know, the show is like, is is not 50 minutes long. It's it's probably maybe like an hour and a half. We haven't finished it yet. So I, I definitely see it as being a, collab, a collaborative piece, you know, which is really exciting. So... That was really part of it. I was writing stage directions, which say, you know, there's like two lines of stage directions, but I was like, that's five minutes of, of stage time. So, you know, there's going to be other amazing people doing stuff there. And I've just written, they they do this. And so that's been really exciting. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, I remember earlier in the year as well, I got to come and see the trials at the Donmar Warehouse. Um, and that was definitely one of the most thought provoking experiences I've had. Um, did you have an idea of, you know, what sort of a reaction you wanted your audience to have when writing that? I mean, so I guess the the trials, which is about uh, near future where the young younger generation are putting the older generation on trial for their action or inaction over the climate crisis. And it's a jury of um, 12 teenagers um, who deliberate on adult defendants. I mean, I, I felt like what I was doing was, as part of it, I was asking myself this difficult question, what would people think of the way that I behaved in the past? Did Have I done enough? And also questions about individual responsibility and our responsibility as individuals inside a kind of you know capitalist system so I mean I was asking myself those questions and you and you can see like that's kind of in in the show and I imagined that other people watching it might also ask themselves those questions but I suppose I, I also feel like people are going to respond in their individual ways so uh, yeah I, I I I don't have a kind of like very specific thing apart from Hey, there's this thing. We should maybe pay attention to it. I def I definitely see that as being one of my roles as a as a playwright, um, storyteller in the world is to kind of be like, hey, look, there's a thing. We should all pay attention to this thing because it's really important. You know, I I think that's a really valid thing to do as a storyteller. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, the trials was such an interesting concept, and you know, it was so wonderful having it played in the Donmar Warehouse, where it's so intimate, and you have this amazing cast, you know, with Sharon Small, Joe Locke, Nigel Lindsay. Um, but did the show end up being what you had imagined it to be when you had first started writing it as well? Um, I think Natalie Ebrahami's production was really was really brilliant, and we had also this cast of you know young, really young performers on stage like our youngest performer was 12 and some of them had had no professional acting experience before and it was definitely you know the the production that I had been hoping for for sure and I was really proud of it and it was we we, we could only run for two and a half weeks because we had to fit the full-time rehearsals and the production into the school summer holiday so that the school the the jurors the young jurors could go back to school and so it was this kind of like brief, beautiful, pure piece of theatre that was like, now it's over. Um, yeah, so I was really proud of it. Yeah, I, mean, I feel very lucky to have gotten to see it because of the very short run. Um, I know um, you're also adapting Foxfinder for the screen as well. Um, what has it been like, you know, revisiting that piece? You know, has anything surprised you at all? I'm going back to it. Yeah, I'm... Uh, so Foxfinder is also a kind of dystopian... Uh, work set in a kind of alternate version of England where everybody blames foxes for things that go wrong and it's really about government control and the story that the government is telling the people is you should be scared of these foxes and they're using that fear to control people um and also and also there's kind of bad weather that's destroying the farmer's crops because it's set on a farm um and there's a lot of stuff in it about belief and and desire and stuff but I won't go I won't go into the whole story because we'll be here all day but um what what's kind of surprising about it, I suppose, is that as a as a as a piece, it feels it continues to feel kind of relevant. And and I wrote it in 2008-9, and it was first produced in two thousand eleven. And and at the time, it felt like maybe I was writing a play. Some people thought that I was writing a play about terrorism because at the time, everyone was talking about terrorism. 
and then it seemed to kind of feel like it's about other things and it so I think what's surprising about it I suppose is that it continues to feel relevant because and I think that's because the story of the government telling you that you should be afraid of this thing over here and it's not to do with what the government's doing that's unfortunately a story that kind of just is kind of timeless maybe Mm. hey your government's lying to you timeless story um (laughs) so it continues to be produced as a play as well and I just I just there's actually a production opening in uh, the National Theatre of Northern Greece in I think two weeks um, and they asked me the same question you know like wh- why do you think this play continues to fit is is so relevant and I'm just like well I think it has some timeless things in it but I obviously hope that we're going to get to a point where the people that are in power aren't lying to us yeah um, hopefully we'll get to that point at some at some stage <laughs> um, yeah I mean looking um, across the theatre landscape as well I do I have also noticed you know I feel like there are a lot more um, women writers and directors um, you know able to make their name in the theatre industry compared to in film and television um, and I was kind of wondering you know why do you think this is and you know, do you feel the same way as well um, I mean I know that this that the statistics are still not obviously it's still not equal for sure in theatre and, and you're, you're quite right to say that the representation of, of female uh, writers and, and directors and everything actually is, is it is much worse in film and TV. And why, why is that? Well, you know, it's this, it's the system and it's all of, it's all of that. I, I do think that there has been a change since, you know, like pre lockdown times. I think that there was a big, a big change. Like there, there was a lot of things happened and then, it does feel now that there's a kind of there is a sort of appetite for more different kinds of voices and that is that's I feel like tired talking about it because I'm just like we shouldn't we shouldn't have to kind of be asking for this it should be it should be normal um so yeah I I think I think that there there has been a kind of um a a change which is which is all to the good for sure yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's been a little over a decade since uh, Fox Finder was first published, I think back in 2011. Um, you know, how much would you say the theatre industry has changed over that time? Oh, so, um, so, so much. I mean, so I guess back back there, I mean, you know, I, I haven't had like loads and loads and loads of plays on, but it used to be very normal that you'd be in a rehearsal room and it would be just all white or or kind of mostly white. And that has kind of changed. I mean, I mean, I that that was not really the case for for my things because I've been I've I've been writing kind of characters where where you couldn't cast them as white people like from quite not not quite with Foxminder but kind of pretty much after that. But now it's kind of now the the room tends to be you know more varied, which is great. Um, and you know, there's just an, I think there's just an awareness. It, I feel like it's really important. I think people also are aware that it's really important that, you know, you don't want to just have your own viewpoint in the room. You want to have different viewpoints in in the room of the people that you're working with. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's definitely helpful to have that. And I think it's definitely a noticeable change, which a lot of us really appreciate. Um, I remember, you know, many years ago, you know, I was taken on a school trip to go and see Cyphers um, in one of our local theatres. Oh, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> So when we went on tour, I went to see Cyphers. Um, and again, it was unlike anything I'd seen before. You know, I'd not seen, you know, um, actors playing multiple characters before um, until Cyphers. Um, is this, you know, is this a way that you would like to see revisited again? Um, is this something that you would um, like to see adapted full screen as well in the future? I did. I did start writing a film adaptation, <clears throat> but that project kind of just ended up getting shelved. I mean, 
I think as a play, it yeah, I mean it would it would be nice to see it on again, obviously, of course. Um it, it did have a couple of productions in in other countries. And I think that it, it it very much is a kind of it it sort of is a play that's sort of asking questions about like identity and what's real, which mm-hmm. maybe also feels quite relevant to now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know uh, you're also working on an, an, an adaptation of Cherry Orchard as well. Um, I was wondering, you know, has it been challenging, you know, re- reconstructing someone else's work and, you know, also presenting this piece for a German audience as well? Yeah, so the the, the production of the Cherry Orchard is um, a project that I'm working with Katie Mitchell. And it's really, I'd say, a very radical kind of reinterpretation of the Cherry Orchard where we're sort of telling it from the perspective of the trees so you're kind of in the orchard with the trees and so it's not so much like a, I mean so it is a version of the cherry orchard but the things that we're doing in it are about nature so it's not so much about the human characters about the natural world and it's kind of like a sort of experiment in eco-dramaturgy um, and so that so, but that has involved me sort of you know more or less doing an adaptation of the cherry orchard which we've then stripped right back to things that you would see or hear from being in the orchard and then there are lots of other things happening things like for example the sun is coming up birds start singing and we're we're going to do those things um so yeah i mean it it's not my it's not my first time kind of adapting someone else's work because i also did a big adaptation of brave new world um at the royal and Gate, and that also went on tour um and i've done some other kind of adaptations that for screen work i think always with an adaptation you're kind of trying to understand what what you think the original writer was doing and then what your response to that is and then what it is that you think you're going to try and do with it so i suppose that that kind of process applies with any adaptation that I do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, are there any other like sort of like classic or foreign text that you would like to adapt as well in the future? Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's so many, but quite often with with adaptations, um, you think of something that you want to do, and of course, somebody else has also had that idea, and the, and the rights have already been taken by somebody. So, um, <laughs> whenever I think of something, it's like, yeah, it's, it's already it's already owned by Warner Brothers or like whoever it is. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I I think I definitely think that I'll do some more adaptations. I I mean, I'd I'd love to. If anybody wants me to do one, let me know. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, what would you say is like the biggest misconception about being a writer as well? Um. Ooh, I don't know. I mean, I guess I guess one thing about being a writer is so I've been incredibly lucky this year because I'm having three productions one after the other and I was looking back at my CV recently because I was sending an application for a writing residency in France and I just realized that you know most years I haven't even had a single production on in London this year I'm having two I suppose that as a writer you spend a lot of time alone like you spend most of your time not having productions on you know, you, you're because you have to kind of write the material, you have to write the thing. It takes a lot of time and effort to write the thing. So mostly you're kind of alone in your house or wherever it is that you do your work or just, you know, working. So I think maybe that's that's a thing about it that people might, might not totally, re- I mean, it makes sense, but you, you might not really realise that that's what mostly happens in the life of a writer. <laughs> and then yeah. when you get part of a, of a production, it's really, really exciting. So I'm having a load of really, really exciting stuff soon I'll go back into just being alone for like vast periods of time again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's definitely been a really exciting year for you. Um, is directing perhaps something that you would also like to explore as well in the future? 
I mean, I'd say never say never. Um, but what I do know is that whilst I think, whilst I sometimes think to myself, oh, I could maybe direct like this very contained sort of thing with not very many actors and not much tech. When I see a production actually happening and I see all of the conversations and all the people and all the teams and all of the things that are kind of being wrangled by the director, that's when my head starts melting. Um, and I guess that it it does take, like I've said, a really long time to kind of, to have an idea, to actually write the script, to make it good. So yeah, so I, I guess that I, I know that I'm good at doing that. So um, I hope that I get to carry on doing that. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Um, just as the last question, um, what advice would you give to an aspiring young writer? Um, I would say that you need to be tenacious. Um, you need to kind of not give up and you just need to kind of write, write and write and write and not give up. And also make sure that you've got something that you can earn money from whilst you are getting into it because um, playwriting won't pay for quite a long time. Um, <laughs> And doesn't pay very well full stop so yeah so those would be my advice be tenacious and have something that earns you money dawn king thank you so much for joining us today thanks